What did the author write? Uh, sorry, why did the author write this? What did it mean for his original readers? Thirdly, what does it reveal about Jesus? And fourthly, very importantly, what does it mean for you? Now, many Christians jump straight into question four without generally asking the, the first three questions. And uh, people will open their Bibles and say, Lord, will you speak to me today? Now, that's a very, very important question to ask the Lord, you know, for him to reveal something for you to take away. But it's not the first question that we should ask when we study the scriptures together. I think that probably the first question is, uh, what was the author meaning and what, what was he intending when he was writing what he wrote? What's going on here that caused these words to be written in the first place? So Mark, for instance, and uh, you should all know this by now, was written largely to non-Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution. And when Mark wrote his gospel, he didn't have us in mind. He had them, those Christians who were suffering persecution in the first century. So these words that we are looking at week by week in Mark's gospel were not written to us, but I suppose you could say they were written for us, that we can benefit 2,000 years on from the wonderful wisdom uh, in these pages and we can learn important lessons about Father God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation, God's plan and God's purposes for the world. Now we're going to be watching a, a video to start us off uh, into chapter 4. It's taken directly from the New International Version of the Bible. As we've been saying recently, these videos are found on Version Bible app and it's uh, all part of the LUMO project. So let me encourage you that if uh, you haven't yet downloaded this free app onto your phones or onto your tablets, do so. It's absolutely brilliant. You not only get the videos but you get um, Bible studies and also you get various translations of the Bible. Okay, sit back. Again, Jesus began to teach by the way. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. <laughs> when he was alone, 
12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. And to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? <laughs> a farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown. Others, like seed, sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, <coughs> some 60, some a hundred times what was sown. Okay, let's uh, recap very quickly. Over the last uh, three weeks, the theme running through the first three chapters of Mark um, has been the authority of Jesus. And Mark presents Jesus as the one who is in control. Um, we've said on a couple of occasions before that he is that friend that you have, a friend with muscles. And the world might appear to be in a mess and the Christians to whom Mark was writing were experiencing lives which were being torn apart by persecution and suffering. But Mark's message to them is that Jesus is in control. And Mark provides these uh, suffering Christians with an injection of hope. Caesar is not going to have the last word. Jesus is in control. And in these first three chapters, we've been introduced to Jesus in a number of ways. He has been called the Messiah or the Christ. In other words, God's anointed one. He's been referred to as the Son of God. He is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has authority over demonic forces. He is the healer of our bodies. He is the one who can forgive sins. And he is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And when we get into chapter 4, we discover Jesus in a new light altogether. That Jesus is the teacher. And in chapter 1, Mark informs us... <coughs> that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Now, as we know from reading the scriptures ourselves, that Jesus was the master storyteller. He, he used um, stories which reflected the world around him, stories about family life, like the son who came back, the rebellious son who came back to his father, stories of agriculture and the natural world about soil and plants and fig tree and fig trees and um, vineyards and fishing, stories about trade and commerce, about weddings, about politics. He was an amazing teacher. No one has ever taught like him. And he has affected 
the lives and nations, really, for the last 2,000 years by his teaching. And today, many people in 2019 in Britain who may not have any formal religion very often quote Jesus, and they do so without sometimes realising that they're quoting Jesus. You think of the conversations that you have with friends sometimes, that in conversations there are various uh, phrases come up, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, salt of the earth, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. People very often speak of the good Samaritan or the prodigal son. Don't worry about tomorrow for each day has enough trouble of its own. Many of these things, have, these sayings have been passed down through the ages to us. And Mark tells us right at the very start of this chapter <clears throat> that Jesus began to teach by the lake and the crowd gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat where he could talk to the people. And then Mark writes in verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. Further on in the chapter, in verse 34, he says, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. He did not use, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Well, as we know, that's not strictly true, is it? Uh, there are many occasions that Jesus did say things which weren't in parable form. Sermon on the Mount, for example, many of the teachings in John's Gospel. But what Mark is doing here is using hyperbole. Hyperbole, a, a deliberate exaggeration in order to make his point. And Mark's point was, Jesus used parables a lot. That was his point. And we do that all the time, don't we? We use hyperbole in our conversation with others. When Julie says, Steve can't sing a note in tune. <laughs> That's hyperbole, really, because it's not factual, because there are times, there are rare occasions, <laughs> <coughs> very rare occasions, when I hit the right note. Law of averages. You know, every so often, you know, it's, 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 it's not musical ability, it's luck. I have no idea how people sing in tune by actually hitting the right notes all the time. Uh, that's the way that I'm wired. But we get Jesus, uh, we get Jesus? no, uh, Julie, don't get the two mixed up. We, we get the point that she is making when she says that. I'm rubbish at singing. I remember, I might have told you this before, a friend of mine who was a really great singer, on one occasion he said, um, to me, he said, Steve, you to singing is like Pavarotti to hang gliding. <laughs> so I think that we get the, the, the idea there of what he was talking about. But Mark tells us that Jesus did not say anything without using a parable. But what are parables? Well, let me tell you two things that they're not, first of all. They're not earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. I know that many people quote that, uh, but that's not what they are. Uh, and if any parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, it's, it, it's by accident that it's that way. Because some of the parables are actually the other way around. They're heavenly stories with an earthly meaning. Think of the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus told of all stuff going on in the afterlife in order to teach important truths about our lives here and now in this world. So they're not earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, but neither are they illustrations. 
to help us understand the teachings of Jesus just a little bit better. Now, many preachers will use humour, use stories to help congregations understand perhaps a difficult biblical concept. And some people believe that that is what Jesus was doing when he was using parables, that he was just trying to bring home something which was very, very difficult and use an illustration in that way just for people to understand his message, make it a little bit easier. You know, as the old song tells us, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Why do I say that? I say that because I have been reading and studying the parables of Jesus for over 40 years. And some of those parables I'm still scratching my head on. But at the same time, I'm drawn to them, can't let them go. I'm intrigued, I'm fascinated, I'm captivated, I'm absorbed, I'm charmed by them. But I'd be the first to admit that I don't always, always understand them fully. Now the first parable that we uh, are looking at in this chapter is the, the parable we, uh, of, of the sower. And we are told that the farmer sowed seed and this seed fell on four types of soil. First of all, some seed fell on the hard, well-trodden pathway. The seed couldn't penetrate and the birds came and ate up the seed. Some fell on rocky ground, which didn't have much moisture. It grew up quickly, but then when the sun came out, it withered just as quickly. Thirdly, fell on some thorny ground where the thorns choked the life out of the plants. And fourthly, where some seed fell on good soil, where the seed was tremendously fruitful. And Jesus concludes this uh, parable with those words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Toughest words in the Bible for a Welshman to read, I must say. But what Jesus is saying there is that I don't want you to listen just with your ears. I want you to listen with your, your hearts. Don't just hear my words, but hear the deeper meaning, which requires from you a personal investment of time and effort and imagination. Or much as I said earlier on, when you come to the scriptures, bring the gift of curiosity to the passage. Ask questions of what you're reading. Wrestle with it, much in the way that Jacob wrestled with the angel of God. Now these disciples hear the parable of Jesus and they can't figure it out on their own. As Jesus said, they have ears but they are not hearing what Jesus is saying. So they come to Jesus with a question. Question in verse 10. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about parables. What did they ask him? Well, we're not told. But if we jump into Matthew's Gospel, the same story, Matthew actually provides us with a little bit more detail. And in Matthew 13, 13, we are told, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to people in parables? Now, when I first read that, I was a little bit surprised by that because these people obviously didn't understand the parable that Jesus had just told. So the most obvious question in the world is, Jesus, please explain that parable. What did it mean? But they don't ask that question of what did it mean. They ask the question of, why do you speak in parables? It's a good question. 
<coughs> and Jesus gives them this answer, verses 11 and 12. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, be ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Thanks for that, Jesus. <laughs> so much more clear now. We, 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 well, to tell you the truth, if they didn't get it the first time round, with that as an explanation, they're probably twice as confused as they were before. So what's all this about? <clears throat> Secrets of the kingdom given to some but not others. And people being ever hearing but never understanding. Is Jesus... Discriminating you, is Jesus playing favourites? How does all this relate to Jesus speaking in parables? Well, parables do two things. They both reveal the truth and they conceal the truth. And for those who have a desire to know more, they're given more understanding. But to those who are either too lazy or too prejudiced or simply can't be bothered, then that truth is concealed. It's hidden away. In this church, at this very second, there are two groups of people. There are those of you who are hooked. Your mind is racing. You're wrestling with these words. You want to dig deeper. You want to gain a kind of understanding, knowing more than you know now. All six of you. <laughs> then there are others who are saying, who cares about this stuff? Why not? Entertain us, Steve. Tell us stories, make us laugh, make us feel good, inspire us. You see, those that listened to Jesus fell into those two groups. There were those who were eager to learn more. And there were those, because of the hardness of their hearts, had no desire, no real desire, to hear what Jesus was saying. They heard his words, yes, but they didn't understand them. Parables are designed to tease us. They get under our skin. They tantalize us and provoke us and entice us. And in doing so, they draw us closer to him. Now, Jesus' message through the parables wasn't aimed at conveying information to the disciples and the crowds. These stories were doing much more than that, something more important than that, than just convey information. They were aimed at spiritual transformation. And you see, when we read the parables, and there are many of them in this uh, particular chapter which you'll be reading through this week, <clears throat> a parable invites us to ask further questions. We don't go away with an immediate answer. When we read a parable, we need to reflect, we need to chew on it, we need to ponder on that story. And then we come back to God for greater insight and help. And we continue to de be dependent on Jesus. Now, I suppose you could say in a, in a similar way, that's why Dan and I are encouraging you through this particular series of Bible teaching to get with, to grips with the scriptures yourselves. Don't just rely on us and the teaching on a Sunday morning. Please don't do that. <coughs> when uh, our three children were infants, uh, we spoon-fed them. It was necessary. 
But then, as infants do, they grow up and they started to feed themselves and they got more on the floor than in their mouths, typical little ones. But bit by bit, our three learned to use a knife and fork properly. And these days, they eat quite well. <laughs> All by themselves. For those who don't know my three kids, well, one's 37, the other's 35, and the third one is 33. But in the spiritual world, it's just the same. Those who are new to the Christian faith need some spoon feeding and help and support to get them up and running. But I tell you what I find incredibly sad is when I observe someone who has been a believer for, say, five years, and that believer is still on spiritual milk, unable to feed themselves from the scriptures, a bit hit and miss about their devotions, a bit hit and miss about their disciplines as Christians, actually more miss than hit. I believe quite passionately that we should all take a responsibility for our own spiritual walk and for spiritual growth. A few years ago, I wrote not only the life group questions for our life groups, which is what I continue to do today, but in those days, in addition to every question that I asked, I added another couple of paragraphs, uh, which I thought would probably be helpful to the life group leaders um, in providing some of the background to the questions and some ideas maybe on where the groups could go in the discussion together. <clears throat> and then I got to hear that some of the life group members were asking life group leaders, so what's the answer then? What does Steve say on the answer sheet? Which is, of course, making the assumption that Steve knows the right answer, which might or might not be the case. You see, what, what am I saying here? I'm saying that my intention was good, but I quickly realized that by doing that, it was not being particularly helpful for the spiritual growth of some of the group members to provide them with what they saw as answers. They wanted to be spoon-fed. And there's a kind of approach to the Christian faith, which I don't think is very brilliant, but it looks for shortcuts. Seven steps to becoming a prayer warrior. Twelve principles of good parenthood. Five practices that will change your life and so forth. I think that one of the best ways to spiritual growth and maturity is through self-discovery. Self-discovery where we have our own private devotions with an open Bible and with an open heart. And if you are someone this morning, you're not really sure where to start in all of this, then can I encourage you to download that app that I was talking about a few moments ago, um, version Bible app, and there are whole sorts of uh, options that you can go there with various Bible readings each day and, uh, and Bible studies. And if you want to talk about that, come and have a chat with Dan or me about that. But Jesus, on this occasion, explained. He didn't do that very often. He explained what this uh, parable meant. <clears throat> and Jesus says to them in verse 13, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? <laughs> I, I chuckled when I read that. You know, Jesus is scolding them a little bit. 
what he's saying is, come on, you lot. If you can't understand this, you're not going to understand anything at all. This is spiritual milk. This is discipleship 101. This is kindergarten stuff. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. That's what I sort of get Jesus saying there. This is about the farmer, and the farmer is God. And the seed that's being sown is the message of Jesus. And the various kinds of soil represent people and their response to the message that they've heard. And what we find in this parable are four responses. There are four kinds of heart. There's the shut heart, the shallow heart, the strangled heart, and the sensitive heart. Now, please don't allow your familiarity with this story and the simplicity of this story rob you of what the Lord might be wanting to say to you this morning. Because Sometimes we do that, don't we? When we read the Bible for ourselves, we will read something which is very familiar and we will skim over it, thinking that we know it, when the Lord may be wanting to say something in very familiar territory to us all over again. The first was the shut heart. Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. <coughs> and Jesus said that some people are just like that. They have hearts which are shut. They are people who are unteachable. They are prejudiced, resistant, defiant even. No matter what you say, it's as though your words are falling in stone. You know, those people who have this idea, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. And as we've observed with Jesus over the last couple of weeks, that's something that we see in the earlier chapters. Last week, when Dan was speaking to us, we saw the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that they would not accept Jesus. Their mind was made up, and some claimed that Jesus was... Beelzebub, Satan, and that he was casting out demons by the power of Satan. Others were looking at ways to kill Jesus, even though they couldn't deny his extraordinary wisdom and his supernatural power. <coughs> and then there's the shallow heart, verses 16 and 17. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. <coughs> when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now this person that Jesus is speaking about here is the person who has not thought things through. The person who has a superficial understanding. In fact, this person is the direct opposite to the first person that was mentioned. The hard-hearted person was a person with a shut mind. But here Jesus is speaking of someone who responds immediately, almost as quickly though, turns away when times get tough. Someone once said to me, Steve, it's not easy being a Christian, but it's easy to start. And I thought, oh my word, that's actually quite profound. It's not easy being a Christian, but it's easy to start. And some people that you meet in life are really at the mercy of every new craze. 
they take things up and they drop them just as quickly and their lives are littered with things that they started off with but didn't finish, didn't conclude. Keep fit, join a club, get the gear, fitness bike, rowing machine. That's until their best friend takes up golf. Get the full golf set, play club, club membership, get all the gear, lessons and so forth. And then from there it's whatever, pub darts, line dancing, whatever. You see, and some people see Christianity much in the same light as that. A phase that someone goes through. They hear the claims of the gospel, make a commitment, but they do so without ever looking at the small print of what Jesus requires of them. They receive the message with great joy and great enthusiasm. They're thrilled with their newfound faith. They get baptised. And then, sadly, ever so sadly, drop out of circulation. We never see them again. Jesus spoke much on counting the cost. In fact, probably, for me at least, the most awful, the saddest verse in the entire Bible is found in John 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and followed him no longer. Those who at the shallow heart. But then there's the third kind of heart as well. And I believe this morning in this place there are people who are to be found in each of these groups. There's a strangled heart, verses 18 and 19. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now this is the person who allows God to get crowded out of his or her life by the stuff of life, by things. And Jesus mentions a couple of things here that strangle our spiritual lives. Firstly, he says life's worries. And secondly, the deceit of wealth. The worries of life can be quite legitimate concerns. You know, some stuff that we um, experience in our lives, well, you know, it's quite legitimate to have great concerns over those things. Finances, family issues, health worries. Someone said that uh, worry is using your imagination to create something that you don't want. Somebody else said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere. You see, and worry can strangle us. But what is the antidote to worry? Well, Jesus told us very, very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. <clears throat> and then Jesus tells his disciples that life is far more important than food, Look at the way that God looks after the birds of the air and he clothes the grass of the field. Then he says, your heavenly father knows that you need of these things. And then he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus commanded his disciples not to worry. And the antidote to worry is to trust God. You can't worry and trust at the same time. It's either one or the other. It's got to be that way. And when we focus on him 
and make Jesus our priority. I believe that the world becomes a different place. Our circumstances might not change, but we change. There were two things that Jesus mentioned. There was the worries of life and also the deceitfulness of wealth. Tommy Tenney, an American pastor, author, who wrote the book, The God Chasers, tells the story of his father. His father was a national leader in the Pentecostal church in America. And his father visited a godly Ethiopian pastor who suffered greatly for his faith. And the American pastor knew of all that the Ethiopian pastor had suffered, him and his family and all that they had gone through. And how such horrible poverty that he experienced. And this American pastor made a mistake by showing what he thought would be gracious sympathy. He told the Ethiopian pastor, Brother, we will pray for you in your poverty. This very humble, godly Ethiopian pastor turned to his American friend and said, No, you don't understand. We pray for you in your prosperity. We pray for you, Americans, because it is much harder for you to live in a place God wants you to live in the midst of prosperity than it is for us in the midst of poverty. And I would suggest to you this morning that the greatest danger of, to Christians not being fruitful is not committing some grievous sin. It's not running off with the church pianist. Don't even think about it. But it's the good things in life. It's the good things in life. That's the greatest danger to not being fruitful. Those things that come in and crowd out Jesus. Have you come across a guy called Demas? He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. On the first occasion, he is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 12. Our dear friend Luke and Demas send their greetings. He is also mentioned in Paul's letter to Philemon, verse 24. Greetings are sent from Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The third occasion that he is mentioned is in 2 Timothy, verse four, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. I find those words incredibly sad. A fellow worker who became a deserter. And I'm sure that didn't happen overnight. Never does. Probably it was a, a slow downward slide that went unchecked. And people just don't fall away in a moment. As someone once said, backsliding is not a fall. It is a, it, it is a slide, not a drop. Demas had a strangled heart. And fourthly, it was a sensitive heart. Verse 20. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. I want to encourage you this morning. It is only one life that we have. This is no dummy run. This is not some dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. And God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And he desires that each of us walk in that plan. And unless our, our hearts are open and are responsive, 
then we can miss out on that high calling that God has, that we can waste our lives in spiritual mediocrity when God has got so much more planned for us. Would the worship team like to come back, please? We're going to sing a song in a moment, which is a, a prayerful response to the challenge of this passage. But first of all, I would like to ask us all here this morning, what kind of heart do you have? What kind of heart do you have? Would you say that yours is the shut heart? That you are close to God? Maybe you're stuck in your ways. Maybe you're resistant to the Lord's still small voice. These days you don't even anticipate that the Lord could ever speak to you in any way. It wasn't always like that. Maybe to you, worship is tiresome. You never read your Bible or pray. You're a little bit on spiritual autopilot. Or maybe this morning, it's not the shut heart, but the shallow heart. That as you look back on your Christian journey, you might recognise that the faith that you once accepted those years ago with joy and great enthusiasm is no longer there. The circumstances of life have just cut in on you, changed everything, swallowed you up. You didn't expect to be handed so many banana skins. But yet your roots haven't gone down deep enough to cope with what life has thrown at you. And your faith feels scorched, feels withered. If it's not the shut heart or the shallow heart, maybe some of you here this morning, that you can relate best to the strangled heart. Your Christian life has been strangled by worry or even by the deceit of wealth, embracing wrong priorities. You know deep in your heart that you have chased after dreams that have choked your spiritual life. You've lost your first love. And the Lord's desire for you this morning is to come back to that place once again where you knew his presence in your life to make him your priority. Place of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and your strength. Putting Jesus once again in that rightful place. Or maybe this morning, and it would certainly be my prayer that most of us would be fitting in this final group sensitive heart that you're keeping in step with the spirit you're hearing that still small voice you're here you're knowing the presence of jesus in your life and that you are experiencing fruitfulness in your life and if that's the case for you this morning and you really sense that yeah that's where you're at then give thanks to god for his grace to you the song that i want us to sing is jesus all for jesus all i am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender these into your hands, for it's only in your will that I am free. And what I would like is for you guys just to sing this through. Sing it through maybe once or twice. And I don't want you to sing. I just want you to reflect upon the words. I want you to make this 
your prayer this morning. And maybe you can relate to maybe a shut heart or a shallow heart or a strangled heart. Then this morning, here's a wonderful opportunity to know once again the grace of God in our lives. So, for the first couple of times, perhaps, just sit and just allow these words to minister to you. Let them sink in. Reflect upon them. Do some business with God. Open up your heart to Him. He knows everything anyway. And take a moment or two just to correct things, maybe, with where you're at and with Jesus.